Well, some of you, I'm sure, have visited the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. I've had the opportunity to visit there and to tour the Capitol a number of times. One of my favorite memories from a Capitol tour was I, was I was on a tour. I was in town for a conference. I was on a tour, just me and an intern from Senator Hoven's office. And the intern, as we were touring the Capitol, recognized the signs that the House of Representatives had just recessed. And so we were in the area of the office of the Speaker of the House. And so he said, we're going to just hang out here for a few minutes. And so we did. And then, then Speaker John Boehner stopped by and had a brief conversation with us on his way into his office. That was kind of fun. But certainly the most noticeable aspect of the Capitol, at least from the outside, is the dome. From the outside, the dome is regal. It's towering. I think all of us can picture it in our minds, but do you remember what is on the inside of the Capitol dome? Probably less of you are able to remember what the inside looks like. The inside of the Capitol dome is a giant painting known as the Apotheosis of George Washington. You might be wondering what apotheosis means. That's a good question. I had to Google it too. It means to become a god or to make divine. So this painting, according to the artist, is a painting of George Washington upon his death, uh, rising to divinity, to godlike status. What's most interesting to me about this painting, and if you take a tour, usually the tour guide will explain each of the aspects of this painting, but that it really conveys one loud, strong message to us, but it utilizes all sorts of symbolism, all sorts of individual pieces to convey this one strong message. It's emphasizing that George Washington wasn't just a normal human being. He wasn't an everyday person, that he was on a, a different level than most of us. According to the painter, uh, he was uh, some sort of deity. There were aspects of divinity. That's the clear message of the painting. On either side of George Washington are Lady Victory and Lady Liberty. And then uh, forming the circle around him in the center are 13 maidens with stars above their heads, uh, representing the original 13 colonies. Some, you'll notice if you pay close attention, some have their backs turned to George Washington, likely because this was painted during the heat of the United States Civil War. Part of this painting, part of what makes it so beautiful, is each of these individual details pointing to one large, resounding message. I could go on for a while. There's tons of details in here, but you're not here for a tour of the Capitol Rotunda. But I mentioned this this morning because Mark is sort of doing the same thing in our text, in his gospel. He's painting for us this grand picture of who, not George Washington, but who Jesus is. He's giving us some individual details that are all proclaiming one central message that Jesus is God, that Jesus is that second person of the Trinity, that he is the very Son of God. And as part of this beautiful portrait that Mark is painting for us, we have seen, for example, Jesus' command of the storm on the sea. 
We've seen Jesus' ability to heal the paralytic. We've seen Jesus' love and concern for the outcast. We've seen Jesus' authority over the forces of evil. Well, this painting that Mark is painting for us gets even more color, more intricacy in our text today as Mark sort of beautifully interweaves two unique stories of two women that probably didn't even know each other in such a way to further illustrate the the power of Jesus, the love of Jesus, Jesus' plan to redeem and to save. I use this illustration of the apotheosis of George Washington to, to remind us that both perspectives are important. If we zoom in, we can see the intricate detail. But that's not the whole message. We have to zoom out and and also see the big picture of what the artist is getting across. We can notice the individual details, but we have to step back and see how all those individual details and encounters and conversations and miracles all work together to exalt Jesus as Lord and God. I invite you to stand for our scripture reading today as I read these two interwoven accounts from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, starting in verse 21. This is God's word to us. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman who was there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt it in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. 
after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up or arise. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word today, that you sent your son to heal, to redeem, to save, to empty death of its power. God, give us faith to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've been following along in our sermon series in the gospel according to Mark, you're likely starting to notice some, some of these themes that keep resurfacing in this gospel. As I've mentioned before, there are several ways to think about these themes. We might see them as pillars in this building that Mark is constructing, or they might be maybe the predominant colors in the painting. Or as I have often said, they are the threads that run through the entire garment of this gospel. Well, today I want to tug on several of those threads and point them out so that we can get a greater sense of what Jesus is up to. The first thread that I want to draw to your attention and focus on today is that of cleanliness. And here's what we see. That Jesus purifies the unclean. I'm not going to go into great history on this topic. I spent a lot of time two weeks ago, if you remember that sermon, in which Jesus casts out an impure spirit. I sort of set the backdrop for this idea of cleanliness and purity, so I won't go into great depth. We also talked about it a number of weeks ago as we, as we read the account of Jesus healing the leper on this theme of cleanliness according to the law. So I'm not going to take us back to those Old Testament texts today, but if you're looking for some additional reading this week to get the whole backdrop, I would encourage you to make note of Leviticus chapter 15 and Numbers chapter 19. Those are sort of the two texts that give us the context and the depth of what is happening in our text today. Both of these women were ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law. The bleeding woman because of Leviticus 15 and the dead girl because of Numbers 19. You can read both of those texts later. And what this meant, and this is important, what this meant is that they were untouchable. And if they were touched, if you came in contact with them, the person who did would also be unclean. And they would have to go through a ritual process of cleansing that God's law prescribed. Jairus, the father of the dying girl, comes to Jesus and begs him for help. And Jesus follows the man. And Mark tells us that a great crowd was there pressing in around him. And this unclean woman, who had been unclean for 12 years, according to the law of Moses, reached out and touched Jesus' cloak. And Mark tells us what was going on inside of her head. After years of suffering, she she hears of Jesus' power. Maybe she had heard the story of the leper or the paralytic. 
Maybe word had gotten out about the demon-possessed man who had been set free from his affliction. Maybe she knew someone who was at the wedding in Cana when Jesus turned those huge jars of water into choice wine. We don't know what she heard exactly, but we know what she thinks. She says to herself, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. I'll be set free. I'll be given a new life. If I can just work my way through this crowd and get close enough to reach out and just touch his cloak, I'll be set free. I'll be saved. But here's the thing. She wasn't even supposed to be there. She broke all of the rules going into the crowd that day. So many people who were touched by her in the midst of this great crowd, as Mark says, were defiled according to the law on that day. Think about the scenario. When Jesus senses that the healing power left his body, he turns around and he asks, who touched my clothes? And the disciples, in typical disciple fashion, say, well, that's a silly question. Have you looked around you? Jesus keeps looking. And this woman comes and falls at the feet of Jesus and confesses. And Mark records for us that she was afraid. She was trembling. Why? Because she had broken the law of Moses. She was clearly guilty in every way. She was unclean and she had worked her way into the middle of a crowd. Not only that, but her her breaking of the law meant that everyone in the crowd that day, including Jesus, was now unclean according to the law. Put yourself in her place. Desperate. Twelve years of suffering. This is her only shot. They, They tried everything. She had spent everything that she had trying to find a doctor who could make her better. Everything failed. This was her last hope. It was worth it. But now she's been busted. She knows she's guilty. She's certainly going to have to answer for her disregard of the law, for her disrespect of God's commands. Trembling with fear at the feet of Jesus. And how does the Savior respond? calls her daughter. This woman had been an outcast for years. Nobody claimed her. She couldn't gather with her family. She couldn't marry. She couldn't engage in business. She couldn't worship in the synagogue. This woman who was in every way defined by her ailment, labeled unclean, cast out of society, Jesus looks at her and calls her daughter. about the flood of emotion she had an identity she was claimed by someone someone cared about her she belonged for the first time in 12 years she belonged someone claimed her daughter your faith has healed you go in peace and be saved be freed Be delivered from your suffering. Jesus could have lectured her for her sin. 
She would have deserved it. She clearly broke the law of God. And instead, what did he do? He healed and he cleansed and he set her free from her sin because that's what Jesus does. Just as Jesus purified the unclean leper and cast out the impure spirits, and Jesus here purifies this unclean woman and saves her and sets her free and gives her new life because that's what Jesus does. I know Christians today who are more interested in sinners being lectured than they are in sinners being saved. We saw that earlier in the story that Mark gives us. Remember the Pharisees? More concerned over Sabbath rules than over people having a new lease on life, being set free. Jesus looks at the unclean, impure woman who broke all the rules to get within arm's reach of him, and he calls her, not sinner, daughter. And he declares her healed and free, because that's what Jesus does. Second thread that I want to bring to your attention today is this, that, that Jesus is the hope of all people. Look at verse 22. Then one of the synagogue rulers, or leaders, named Jairus, came and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. We've we've heard the story of the outcast, and now we hear the story of the inner circle. The elite, we might say. Jairus was not a rabbi, but he was the one tasked with administration and oversight of the synagogue. He was well respected. He was entrusted with great responsibility. This is, this is fascinating because Jairus would have been extremely well connected. He would have known every rabbi, every teacher, every religious leader, every prophet in the region. And when his daughter is dying, when his daughter is breathing her last, where does he go? He runs to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can help, whether whether an outcast, uh, untouchable, or respected religious leader. Jesus is the only hope. Jesus is the hope of all people. The contrast between these two people couldn't be more stark. One on the inside, well-connected, well-respected. The other one rejected, outcast. One with connections, resources, the other with no place to turn. Ground is level at the foot of the cross. Whatever your background, whatever your story, whatever your status or economic class, whatever your experience with the church, whatever the sin or failure hiding in your closet, Jesus is all of our only hope. We live in a meritocracy a merit-based system. And sometimes our merit is the result of hard work and good choices. And other times our merit is the result of the family that we're born into or the country in which we were born. The kingdom of God is so utterly different. In spiritual matters, none of us in this room this morning have any merit to speak of. 
None of us have a leg up. None of us have a competitive advantage. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, the natural state, our natural state, my natural state is one of spiritual death. Dead, as Paul says, in our sins and in our trespasses. That's it. That's the extent of the merit that I have. That is the extent of the leg up that I have, that I am spiritually dead. It's true of every single one of us, every single person that you meet, that the only hope that any of us have is in the grace of God. The only hope that we have is Jesus coming and telling our corpse to rise. Jesus is the hope of all people. Synagogue leader, impure outcast, you and me. Jesus purifies the unclean. He's the hope of all people. And the third thread that I want to draw to your attention today is this. That Jesus holds the power over death. We've seen Jesus in the gospel exert his authority over nature, over disease, over the forces of evil. And so we might say that there's, there's one last enemy to be defeated, and that is death. Verse 39, the child is not dead, but asleep. So he took her by the hand. Remember, she's ceremonially unclean. He takes her by the hand and he says, little girl, arise. Scripture records for us that the little girl immediately stood up. Two simple words from the mouth of Jesus, and he proves, he shows that he holds the power over death. Both cannot be sovereign. Either death holds ultimate power or Jesus holds ultimate power. And Jesus proves here that even death, which so many live their lives in total fear of, even death bows its knee before the Son of the Most High God. Of course, we're just a few weeks away from Resurrection Sunday, in which we saw most clearly that death was defeated. That while nails were driven into the hands of the Savior, so too they were driven into the heart of that great enemy of death. Have you ever stopped to wonder what was going on in Jairus' mind when Jesus stopped to address this woman in the street. My kid's life is on the line here. Can't you come back and deal with this later? My little girl's dying. But of course we see that Jesus' timing is always perfect. It brings tremendous peace for the Christian. Jesus' timing is always perfect because he's the one who holds the power over all things, including death. That's why we as Christians can, as awkward as it sounds, can die well. We can die in confidence. We can die in peace because we know that the God in whom we trust, the God who saved us, the God who looks at us and calls us son or daughter, the God into whose name we have been baptized is the God who holds the power over death. And so we can live and even die knowing that he is sovereign, 
knowing that he holds all things in his hand. Think about that bedroom. The lifeless body of Jairus' daughter on the bed. Jairus and his wife stricken with grief. Can you feel the mood? And Jesus proves who is on the throne. Jesus proves who is in control. Jesus proves that it's not just disease and not just storms and not even just the forces of evil that are under his power, but that even death itself listens when Jesus speaks. And it bows its knee. There is no greater comfort that you will ever hear than those words. There is no greater hope. There is no greater source of joy. The one who died for you has also brought an end to death for you. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. This is not a, it's not a name it and claim it promise. That if you just have enough faith that you can somehow claim the power of Jesus and go around healing people and raising them from the dead, that's not what Jesus is doing here. Remember, all the, all the apostles died. This is a display. This is a beautiful, glorious display of power by which Jesus declares that we need not fear even death because it's within his control. And so we're free to trust. As we wrap this to a close this morning, I want to make one more observation about our text that I think is powerful. Something that Mark seems to be emphasizing here. If we think about this collection of three stories, so if we go back to two weeks ago when we, when we talked about Jesus uh, casting the demon out of, out of the man on the other side of the sea, if we think about this collection of three stories of Jesus triumphing over the unclean and healing the unclean, what, what was the, think about the posture of each of those three people. Go back to Mark chapter 5, verse 6. The man possessed by many demons, what was his posture? Mark tells us when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. How about the bleeding woman in today's text? Mark chapter 5, verse 33, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And then how about Jairus? The father of the dying girl, Mark 5, 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. Do you think that Mark makes note of that in all three of those stories accidentally? No, he's driving home a point. Healing comes to us. New life comes to us at the feet of Jesus. As long as we think we're fine, as long as we think we're strong, as long as we think we can fix our mess, as long as we think we have it under control, so long as we are standing on our own two feet, relying on our own merit, our own strength, our own achievement, we are unlikely to receive what Jesus offers. Some of you have never fallen at the feet of Jesus. Today's the day.
Today's the day to, to turn from your own strength and to fall down before the feet of the gracious Savior. Others of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time, but have been maybe trusting in yourself, trusting in your own righteousness, trusting in your own morality, and, and your eyes have perhaps turned inward. Today is the day to fall back at the feet of Jesus. It's what I love about the way that God comes to us through his word. His law daily points out my sin. His law, every day that I, that I read his word, his law calls me to repentance. Every single day, continually showing me my, my failure, my, my failure to love him with my whole heart and soul and mind. My failure to love my neighbor as myself. It's a glorious gift that God gives us in his law. Because every day it leaves us with nowhere to turn. Just like the woman in the street, just like Jairus, nowhere to turn. To fall at the feet of the Savior again. And when we do, when we fall at the feet of Jesus, what do we find? For all who believe, Jesus looks down, calls us his son, his daughter, and he tells us, arise. Let's pray. The loving and gracious God, we are grateful for your concern for the outcast, for the insider alike. We're grateful for your love for all people. We thank you that you purify the unclean, that you heal our brokenness, that you hold the power over death. Lord, by your word and by your Spirit, lead us back to the feet of Jesus. Every day, lead us back to the feet of our Savior. Lord, we confess our failure. We confess our judgmental hearts. We confess that we haven't loved you as we should. We're grateful that you look at us, that you remind us of who we are, son or daughter, that you tell us to rise. That you assure us of your care and your forgiveness and the new life that is found only in you. So strengthen our faith, we pray. Sanctify us and leave us trusting in you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.